Section 16 of Monday Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Monday Tales by Alphonse Daudet. Translated by Marion McIntyre. Section 16. The Death of Chauvin. One Sunday in August, traveling in a railway coach just at the beginning of what was then termed the Hispano-Prussian incident, I met him for the first time. Although I had never seen him before, I had no difficulty in recognizing him at once. Tall, lean, grizzled, a fiery face, nose like a buzzard's beak, and rolling eyes with an angry flame in them, and never relenting to amiability save for the illustrious gentleman, who sat in the corner, decorated with the cross of the legion. As I noted the low, narrow forehead, stamped with obstinacy, one of those foreheads which the same thought, working ceaselessly and ever in the same place, has at last dented with a single deep wrinkle, something of over-credulity in his bearing, something of the political précision in his manner, especially the terrific fashion in which he rolled the letter R when speaking of France and of the French flag, caused me to exclaim to myself, Here is Chauvin. And Chauvin indeed it was, Chauvin at his best, declaiming, gesticulating, belaboring the Prussians from the pages of his newspaper, Chauvin entering Berlin, his cane upraised, an intoxicated, deaf, blind, furious lunatic. Conciliation or delay, impossible. War, war at any cost. But what if we are not prepared for that, Chauvin? Monsieur, Frenchmen are always prepared for anything, responded Chauvin, drawing himself up to his full height. From beneath his bristling moustache, an explosion of ours rushed with such energy that the windows fairly trembled. Irritating, foolish personage! How quickly I understood all the jeers, all the jesting songs that tradition had woven about his name, making a celebrity of this absurd creature. After that first meeting, I swore I would flee him, but through some singular fatality, he seemed ever to be dogging my footsteps. On the very day in the Senate, when Monsieur de Gramont had solemnly announced to our conscript fathers, war is declared, in the midst of forced acclamations, a formidable cry of Vive la France rose from the galleries. And looking upward near the friezes, I saw Chauvin brandishing his lank arms. Some days later I ran across him again in the opera, standing in Girardin's box, demanding to hear Le Rhin Allemand and observing to the singers who had not as yet learned that classic, to learn it will take longer than to take it. Soon it appeared that this ubiquitous Chauvin had taken complete possession of Paris. Everywhere, at street corners, on the boulevards, always perched upon some bench or table, this absurd Chauvin appeared before me. Wherever drums were beating, flags floating, the strains of some Marseillaise sounding, there was Chauvin, distributing cigars to the soldiers about to leave, hailing the ambulances, that hot head of his rising above the crowd, inciting them whilst he roared, clamored, and invaded every spot 
until it almost seemed that there were 600,000 Chauvins in Paris. Truly, one could not have escaped this intolerable figure unless he had shut himself up at home and locked windows and doors. And how was it possible to remain in one place after Wissembourg, Forbach, and all that series of disasters which made that mournful month of August seem like one long nightmare, with scarcely a waking moment, the nightmare of a feverish, oppressive summer? How could one refrain from mingling with that restless, moving multitude, running in search of news, of fresh bulletins, promenading all night long beneath the gas jets, their faces full of terror and consternation. And no night of all that I did not encounter Chauvin. He passed along the boulevards, advancing from group to group, delivering a peroration in the midst of a silent crowd, overflowing with hope, with good news, sure of success despite everything, repeating to you twenty times in succession that Bismarck's white cuirassier had been crushed to the last man. Singular fact. Already Chauvin had ceased to impress me as before. He no longer seemed to me as ridiculous as of old. I did not believe a single word he was saying, but what of that? It delighted me merely to listen to him. In spite of his blindness, his insane pride, his ignorance, there was in this diabolical creature a passionate, persistent energy which acted like a vital flame warming the heart. And we had need of such a flame during the long months of the siege, during that terrible winter when we lived upon horse-flesh and bread fit only for the dogs. The very aspect of Parisians seemed to say, were it not for Chauvin, Paris would not have held out for a week. From the beginning, Trochu had said, they can enter when they will. They will never enter, said Chauvin. Chauvin had faith. Trochu had none. What was that to Chauvin? He still believed in notaries' plans, in Bazaine, in sorties. Every night he listened to Chanzé's cannons booming at Etampes, the sharpshooters of Fédherbe behind Anguin, and, what was most wonderful of all, even the rest of us heard them. So deeply had the spirit of this heroic imbecile entered our souls. Brave Chauvin! Who but he was ever the first to sight in a sky livid, overhanging, and full of snow, the tiny white wing of some carrier pigeon? When Gambetta sent us one of his eloquent tarasconades, it was Chauvin's powerful voice that declaimed it at the door of every mairie. During the keen December nights, when the long lines of people stood shivering before the butcher's shops, chilled and weary with waiting, Chauvin bravely led the line, and thanks to him, that famished crowd found they still had strength enough to laugh and sing and dance in the snow. Le l'on la les ailes passées, les portions dans la Lorraine, chanted Chauvin, and galoshes clattered, beating time, and for a moment the warm red of health returned to poor wan faces framed in woolen hoods. Alas, of what avail was it all? One evening, crossing Rue Drouot, I saw an anxious crowd pressing silently towards the mairie, and in that mighty Paris, where now not a light or a carriage was to be seen, I heard the grandiloquent voice of Chauvin solemnly proclaiming, 
We hold the heights of Montretout. A week later, all was over. From that day, Chauvin appeared to me only at rare intervals. Two or three times I saw him on the boulevard, gesticulating, talking of revenge, for that letter R still rolled upon his tongue. But no one listened to him any longer. Fashionable Paris languished, pined for its former pleasures. Laboring Paris was in no pleasant mood. Vainly did poor Chauvin brandish his long arms. The former groups, instead of surrounding him, scattered at his approach. A regular bore, said some. Spy, cried others. Then came the days of insurrection, of the red flag, and the commune. Paris in the power of riotous mobs. Chauvin, himself a suspect, no longer dared to stir abroad. Then came the famous day when the Vendôme column was pulled down. Of course he had to be there in a corner of the place. The crowd guessed it was he. The street Arabs insulted him, though they did not see him. Hello, there's Chauvin, they exclaimed, and when the column fell, the Prussian officers, drinking champagne before a window at headquarters, raised their glasses, roaring, Ha! 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 Monsieur Chauvin! Till the 23rd of May, Chauvin gave no further sign of life. Crouching at the bottom of a cellar, the unfortunate was reduced to despair when he heard French shells go whizzing over the roofs of Paris. At last, one day, between two cannonades, he ventured to set foot outside. The street was deserted, and seemed wider than when he had seen it last. On one side rose the barricade, full of menace, with its cannons and red flag. On the other, two short chasseurs of Vincent advanced, keeping close to the wall, and stooping, their guns pointed. The troops of Versailles had just entered Paris. Chauvin's heart bounded. Vive la France, he cried, darting towards the soldiers. His voice was lost in the midst of a fusillade from opposite sides. Through some sinister misunderstanding, this unfortunate was a target for both sides, the victim of a twofold hate which slew him. Upon that road whose stones had been uptorn, his body fell. It lay there for two days with arms outstretched, and with a rigid face. Thus perished Chauvin, martyr of our civil wars. He was the last Frenchman. End of section 16. Recording by Linda Johnson.